0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium, with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to tell you that the new series of interviews called Is the Mic Working? is now up and running over on Patreon.com. Each month, you will get a full-length interview with a prominent figure in the classical music world who chat with me about their experiences working with conductors. You'll also get an extra monthly episode giving you exclusive news about the podcast, about my own conducting career, and lots of extra clips of music to enjoy. And this month, there is a bonus article telling you all about the method I use when I mark up a score. Just go to patreon.com forward slash podium, and for the price of a glass of wine or a pint of beer, you can subscribe to this new series and lots more. Today, I conduct a conversation with a young American conductor who is rapidly making quite a name for himself, both in the US and Europe. Not only has he been Associate Conductor of the Minnesota Orchestra, he has also found time to set up a scholarship initiative in his own name. It's a pleasure to welcome Roderick Cox. Roderick, lovely to talk to you today. Hi,
1: it's good to speak to you as well.
0: Oh, you live in Berlin. Um, you've been there all the way through lockdown. What's lockdown been like for you? Well, um, I,
1: I have been here mostly. Um, also, I've spent time in Munich as well. My lockdown occurred when I was. <laughs> it was I was in mid-flight headed to my to New York for my New York Philharmonic debut, right. uh, and uh, saw on the plane that Courtney Hall weren't. Were canceling, and the Met was canceling, and finally, about four hours away from JFK, that the New York Philharmonic canceled. So, I just spent two days in in uh, New York and tried to, hit, and then headed back to Berlin. I just felt it was probably the best. I, I go home uh, versus uh, remain in, in the U.S. Uh, yeah. Until oh, this down.
0: What, what a shame um, that you were going to such a prestigious concert and. It got. Shy. I was halfway down the motorway driving to London to go and work with the BBC Concert Orchestra when my my lockdown started. I suppose um, almost the same, though a little bit more on terra firma. Um, and have you been studying scores, or have you been like me? I've sort of been bereft of all of that. I've just sort of stopped learning music for a while.
1: No, um, I have been studying scores, and um, it has it. It has gone through many different phases, I must say. Mm. Uh, when I first got back to Berlin, I was still under the impression that this would be uh, a couple-week uh, thing uh, matter, you know. And I, mm. we kept we kept hearing, "Stay inside until you and we until we can um, flatten the curve." And and so I think for most people, we felt or thought that okay, this this. Let's just do this for two weeks and then we'll be back to work. So really uh, a number of my concerts were still not canceled in May and I was supposed to go to LA Philharmonic in July. And so I was studying for these things. And um, and then when the cancellations uh, were coming in, I would just, you know, have my moment of <laughs> uh, despair or so, and then continue to, um, to try to muster up the energy or inspiration to keep studying for the next thing. Mm. Uh, then when they were all canceled, yes. I mean, I, like I said, it, it went through phases and there was a time where I just didn't want to study or listen to any music and and found myself watching uh, Netflix. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, this sounds like my, a very familiar story. <laughs> yes. But, um,
1: now as, as um, I think for me, it all went into different I went into different phases. I think the first was a bit of shock and, and depression or disappointment and and now I've entered into a phase of um, acceptance mm. and um, motivation and and so I've been in in good spirits the past month or so and and have been have have really taken the time to really reflect on. Um, the past and the present and thinking Mm. about the future and and what it may look like.
0: Well, let's reflect. Let's go right back. And when did music first come into your life and in what form? Well,
1: it seems it it feels like it's been in my life, um, all my life since I was born, but not in the form of classical music. Um, Mm. My mom was a a singer and she she grew up. In the church um, and had a, a, a female vocal group and and sang in the choir and on the praise team so very much in in sort of the the gospel realm that was music just always playing in in the house uh, on the way to school in the morning she would all oft- instead of an alarm clock it was often music that she would turn on to wake my brother and i up and i still remember um, you know, Saturday mornings, I w- I would be so annoyed because this would be, <laughs> would be playing around the house, and so that that is where I first witnessed the power of music. I would always go and sit in her sit in the choir rehearsals on a Friday night, and at the performances, or I say the when my mom would sing, I was her. <laughs> I think her toughest critic, but also perhaps her biggest cheerleader. <laughs> um, and and so later did I start to, I, I think I got a keyboard for Christmas and was um, was playing music by ear uh, before I finally got my own instrument, which was, I started as a percussionist and then uh, switched to French horn in, in high school because I was just so fascinated with the, the, the instrument and what it looked like and what it sounded like and there, that there were so few uh people in the band that played the instrument and so <laughs> those were some of my early experiences with music
0: well i think um somebody i know who was a horn player at the Hallé uh, orchestra in manchester um who now uh, is a presenter and uh, educator he said to me that he he, his first experience of going to, of music was going to a concert that his brother was playing in, and he hated the whole thing. But it was the shape of the instrument of the French horn at the at the back of the orchestra. He said he said to his mum, "Dad, I hate hated the whole evening, but please can I learn the French horn?" Um, so I wonder whether it's you know the the shape of it, the the fact as you say that there are only four people doing it or five, uh, depending on um, whether there's a bumper or not. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's funny how you're drawn to instruments, isn't it?
1: yeah so the, I mean it is an amazing amazing instrument, and I think the the overall feeling of of how it vibrates through the room and and how it, the reverberation of off the walls and everything it just is just it i thinking about it at this moment i I miss it but i perhaps uh it it's a great instrument for conductors to learn because. They learn how to play in the woodwind family, how to play in the brass family, how to play even in the string family, because the horn line is often um, coupled with, with the cello and so forth. And and transposition is good, but also <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not the most practical because it's one of the hardest instruments to maintain if you're not playing it every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as a conductor, when you're on the road and you're traveling, it's just Nearly impossible. I don't think I know any conductors who were horn players. You know, I think Espeka Solomon, Don Ronicles, I don't think any of them actually play the instrument anymore. So I envy the people like um Oslo Vanska, who can take his clarinet and take it out and play it here and there, and, uh, and people who bring their violins and everything. Um, it's, it's a much easier. Um, they, they have a much easier task in, in maintaining those skills.
0: So I'm assuming, uh, being a French horn player, you would have played in high school orchestras or youth orchestras um, uh, summer camps, music camps. Is that true?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And this would be where you first encountered conductors. Um, at this stage, was it something that was of interest to you or was it something that came much later?
1: Well, my first interest in conducting was not in the arena that I am doing now. I, I was very, I, I, growing up in Georgia, which is the South, and and um, the South is very big on football. And mm. when you have football, you have uh, marching bands. And so I love participating in the marching band. And my first idea of of being cool as a conductor was being a drum major. I wanted to be a drum major so bad. Uh, (laughs) And when I actually went to college, I I won, finally won the drum major audition. Uh, And the second year I lost, they didn't give it to me again. And so it it seemed as if my quest to get on the podium was quite quite tough, was quite hard. Um, But I started studying conducting independently after taking a couple courses in undergrad uh, in Georgia and begged the teacher to let me come for individual lessons. Um, and when I was deciding to get my master's degree, I was trying to decide if I want a master's in music education or, or, or conducting. And I realized that if I got a master's in music education, how I would spend most of my time doing research and writing papers versus actually um, being in an ensemble and working and performing. And so I chose conducting. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so still I didn't think, I, I didn't know anything or really uh, know anything about conducting professional orchestras or that wasn't an ambition of mine. Um, until I took an orchestral conducting course with Victor Jampolsky, uh, the the orchestral conducting teacher at Northwestern, who then told me, um, he said, I I think you should be conducting orchestras. And at first I I, I laughed and I thought it was, it was um, far-fetched opinion, but but it was it was a seed that was planted in me, and, and all of a sudden I, I began to ponder on his advice and and had to really take a one hundred and eighty turn to um, devote my my life really to pursuing that that avenue
0: and what sort of teacher was he? Um... You know, in the previous episodes, I've asked about everybody's teachers and, uh, you know, most of them seem to have a fairly holistic approach, you know, cover every angle. Though some teachers are very much into school learning and, and didn't give hardly any stick technique advice and others the other way around. What was he like? Well,
1: the interesting thing is I, when I was at Northwestern, I studied with uh, two teachers and I, I think I was still the only conducting student that did this. Um, I studied with, first I started off with Mallory Thompson, and then I had to, to go and sit in her office and and say I wanted to pursue orchestra conducting. And I was so, um, I felt that the university and those, the faculty were so accommodating to let me, to let me do that. So I, for one um, studio class, I would go to Mallory Thompson, and the next one, I would go to Victor Yampolsky, and I would have lessons with both. And I found that it was probably one of the best situations because Mallory Thompson was a very um, meticulous technician and really talked about the, the technique of conducting and using the stick this way and really talking about how to go about achieving a certain sound. And Victor was this sort of naturally gifted conductor who Talked about mostly music, and if you and didn't understand sometimes why you can't get the sound you need, I uh, would kind of just push you aside sometimes to get on the podium and show you and say do this, and and so it was tough because you had to then really adapt very quickly um, and try to do what he was telling you to do, which is hard because you I would think it would be best to go home and try to practice these new skills, but. He was very demanding in that way, and if you did not uh, adjust yourself um, quickly to what he's telling you, it it could turn into a pretty rough situation. But I think in the long run, that helped me when I worked with some other, you know, really tough teachers like Daniela Gotti, um, <laughs> uh, where you need to be to be quick and fast on your feet. Um, Victor Yampolsky was was really A tough teacher uh, and demanded a lot, but he he was also very, very sweet. Uh, His lessons were not personal. Um, So when the lesson was over, we'd all, you know, he'd rip you apart or tear you up. But when the lesson was over, you know, he'd say, Oh, you guys want to grab lunch? You want to grab coffee? (laughs) You know, and so that was the type of family environment I think that was created. Uh, at Northwestern and I still speak to those teachers uh, today. And even Robert Spano, uh, it was great working with him at Aspen.
0: So you said you you met uh, Robert Spano at Aspen. Um, and you got a prize there, didn't you?
1: Well, when I left Northwestern, I went back home, because I didn't have a job yet, to Georgia. And luckily Atlanta, I'm from Macon, and luckily, like, luckily Atlanta is just you know, 90 minutes away. And so I believe I first met Mr. Spano when I asked to come observe uh, rehearsals at the Atlanta Symphony. Mm. Um, and of course, it was a dream to go to Aspen, but that didn't come until a couple of years later until I was finally accepted. Um, and when I was there, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an amazing place to be. And um, I was supposed to go back as a guest conductor for the first time in seven years since I uh, was there as a student. I was supposed to go back uh, in a couple of weeks. So it was a, a, bit, um, a bit disappointing. And um, I'm looking forward to getting back there next summer.
0: Uh, I've played for Robert Spano ooh, at least on three, three occasions and he comes over as being such a lovely guy and I'm assuming he was the same when you were observing rehearsals and when he was teaching and mentoring you. Is that right? Yes. I
1: mean, Mr. Spano is a, a great teacher and um, great teacher of conductors, which is which is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of conductors are not necessarily good teachers um, of conducting and so He's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man, and um, and yes, it was. It was. I, w- I worked with him twice because I did get the the Hearth Prize, uh, which allowed me to come back for one other season and uh, work with him.
0: Um, you just mentioned Daniel Igatti, e. and it was it was the masterclass that you did with the Concertgebouw Orchestra and Daniel Igatti, e. where you first came to my attention because. Uh, I loved those um, masterclasses. There were two sets with Daniela Getty and there's just been one with Ivan Fisher. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to touch briefly on that before asking about you know, going on into guest conducting in competitions. Um, how did that come about? How did you find it? What was the experience like? Because for those who haven't watched them yet, and I really can uh, highly recommend that you find them on YouTube, they're wonderful masterclasses and but at the time they were streamed live on Facebook, so there were big, big audiences. What was it like? Tell us all about that experience.
1: Well, I must say, the most recent one I I didn't really watch. I don't think I really could, Uh, but I was definitely definitely, um, rooting for those uh, young conductors up there. I would say it's an absolutely amazing experience. It's a humbling experience um but it's a wonderful experience for for growth and development and to work to work at that level to work um you really have to stretch yourself uh as a musician and, and as an artist and it's sort of like a a checkup to let you know where you are and where and what areas you need to grow in or would like to grow in. Because at that level of working with an orchestra like that and working with a teacher like that, um, he wants you to, and they want you to uh, dig deeper, dig deeper into the music, uh, find its meaning, find a a sincere interpretation that is um, grounded in uh, your intellectual understanding of the music and how you convey that to the musicians. Um, it, it, it's, it was tough, of course, doing that in front of an audience, in front of an orchestra, trying to lead, but also try, having to follow and receive instruction all at the same time. Um, conducting masterclasses are, weird, uh, are a weird dynamic in that way because when you're on the podium, podium yes, you're supposed to be the person of authority in the room, or exercising authority, and yet that's chopped down by the uh, <laughs> by the teacher, and you're told what you don't know, or what you're doing wrong, or what you should be doing, and then you have to channel again that authority to try to um, um, to lead the orchestra. But Mr. Gotti was was very very giving of his time and his attention, and I. Um, I, I learned so much there, and I, I wish, <laughs> I wish all during Corona, I could just go study with him and uh, <laughs> and receive, soak up as much knowledge as I could as I can.
0: It's funny you're talking about responding and changing quickly. Uh, I remember it's just popped into my head. I remember the the bit when you were conducting the Rite of Spring. And excuse my singing, and because I can't remember the rehearsal number, as the rum bum bum boom, ba bum ba-da-ba, bum ba-da-ba, bum bada bum 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 that section, and yeah. you were conducting it in one particular beat pattern uh, very well. Uh, uh, and then he stopped you and said, and then gave you probably a ten-minute reasoned answer as to why you shouldn't be conducting it that way, and said, "Can you try and conduct it the other way?" And to your your credit, you did it superbly to to um, conduct it the other way around. Um, I've done exactly that thing because i conduct it one way and then i had to rehearse it for another conductor who conducted it the other way and i it i really struggled so how you did that on a, you know, what on five minutes notice was wonderful And um, that's the sort of thing you're talking about isn't it where you all stood there you're conducting you do your thing and then he stands up and says no you know have you thought about doing it completely the reverse what was well, that like i mean you handled it so well you were so cool about it
1: well, I, I have to say that was a very, very scary moment because of, uh, something like the Rite of Spring is, I think, something that's also you—you you build up muscle memory for. Yes, you do. Yeah. Uh, because of the mix meters, it, uh, the way it sits in your body, um, it never occurred to me uh, to conduct it the way he um, he instructed me to. And actually, I've studied it. I've studied the piece with, with several teachers and they've never ever told me to do it that way. Man. And so, yes, that was a tough moment where I had to really just just um, adjust quickly. And, and the cameras are on you. And so I, that's why it's important to go to, going into um, a masterclass at that level in your studies or in your career, um, you have to have the chops, um, the technique and the chops to make those adjustments um, quickly. And uh, I think so, that's why a number of the conductors who, 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 who are chosen to go, you know, actually have a bit more experience maybe at the early part of their careers versus studying in, in, in university because you, you need to be able to do that. But it was interesting because he, he really chopped me down to size uh, during that session. And then behind, um, we have sessions off camera Damn. and I was telling him, you know, Mr. Gotti, I really think that you know if you look at this and you look at that in the bass drum and, and then look at how, Kavinsky likes to juxtapose the, the strong beat against the weak beat, and and I think at that time I looked, I turned to others uh, other other source materials in in the in the piece and actually convinced him that my way was a legitimate way, and he said to me, "Well, why didn't you fight for it? Why didn't you go after it up there?" And I was like, <laughs> I said, I don't. I was thinking, I don't think. I don't think the best time in front of the Concert Cabal, in front of a live audience and uh, a live stream around the world is the best time to um, push back against, you know, a maestro and a master class. You, I think is to, to listen and try to do what they're telling you.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful story. I, well, you, I think you've probably alluded to what my ne- the answer to my next question, which is and so going on, which way do you conduct it? The reason why I'm asking the question is, at the time, I was learning the right to spring for the first time, You know, I, I, it had just never come around. And that particular spot had given me real mental torture as to which way around to do it. And so I watched what Gatti said, and I do it his way. You know, What do you do now? Well, I haven't
1: done it since then. Uh, and I have to look back at the score and look back at the video and see. I think there were a couple things that I perhaps did agree with with what he uh, spoke about, but uh, with the main part there at the beginning of mm-hmm. the glorification of the chosen one, I I think it's it's too easy uh, to conduct it a three plus two punja uh, parada with the, with the hand coming down that that way. I think in thinking of the music being something that's quite primitive, that's quite grounded, that that um that jolt from the orchestra uh, should be jarry and should come off of off of the beat, and that you should be with the timpani. so yeah. that that yada is is a sort of a reaction and um and that it, it, it it's a bit more unstable. But if you're one two three ba da da bum 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 ba da da, I just think it 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 it's too, um, I wouldn't. I suppose uh, maybe this is the wrong word, but too comfortable, too pedestrian. And I like the sense of um, of um, uh, the syncopation off the beat.
0: Well, you've argued the other case perfectly well, and you know I it's now got to a stage where I, you know i don't mind which way around anybody conducts it it's hard enough as it is in the first place um but you know i wanted to bring it up and i'm so glad you talked about it with such passion because that was the place in those three days of master classes where i thought hey you know this is really reacted so quickly there and taken on board that that criticism from there how did things progress were you already uh, entering competitions had you got an agent well, was that was doing that a positive benefit? You know, the, the, were the benefits there for do after doing that?
1: No, I had already um, had those things in place before doing the masterclass. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so the masterclass was something that was purely something educational and something um, I was not going there for any sort of career uh, advancement. But uh, I think it was. Um, a great learning and musical uh, rich experience for me. Um, Actually, I I did the Malco competition before that. And um, Malco competition was an interesting uh, thing or point for my career because I had never done uh, a major competition before. And I was, I think I'm getting to the age where probably I, I I wouldn't be doing them, but I was very curious about it, uh, and it's something I, I followed on 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 social media and everything when they would do the streaming for for years. Um, and I was I already had numerous concerts um, with the Minnesota Orchestra and BBC Symphony and so forth at that same time
0: Mm.
1: and i actually pushed some of those aside because i wanted to to not get to a point in my life or career where i say what if what if i you know i i really was fascinated by by doing one of these things um but in hindsight if i was to go back and if i could do it all over again um for me just for me not for you know not saying any other conductor but for me i wouldn't would not have done it number one i I didn't need it number two it wouldn't have done anything um uh well besides just a string of more orchestras i suppose um i don't know i I just felt that it wasn't something i really enjoyed and um i don't think i'm a competition conductor
0: I think that's a fair point. I mean, I didn't start conducting seriously until I was 35. So as you'll know, that's normally the cut-off age for any conducting competition anyway. So I could never have entered one. Um, I do look back and think I wonder what it would have been like. But I think like you, I wouldn't have enjoyed the competitive element in something that frankly is not competitive. If you get my drift, you know, conducting and making music shouldn't be about, you know, who, who's the best. It, everybody's different. So I'm, I think i probably like you as so I wouldn't have enjoyed it. I, again, like you, I wished I'd had a go. But, you know, for me, it was well,
1: impossible. Are, I mean, they are beneficial. Yeah. I won't, will not say they're not beneficial. I mean, they really, if you win, I mean, they're yeah, mostly yeah. beneficial if you win, uh, they can really elevate or jumpstart your oh. um, your career because when if you're looking for a manager or some someone like that to represent you, a lot, a lot of times they're going to be want, wanting to know what is there to, um, what's there you have to manage so okay. far. Like have, do you have uh, relationships built with orchestras? Um, um, because to start from scratch or with any manager is, is pretty, um, is it's a lot of work and it's pretty tough. And so um, doing a competition gives you that sort of platform. Um, but yes, like you said, it, it's it's obviously not a, a realistic scenario in terms of the work or the job. And and I, I don't knock them at all. Uh, they're, I think they're very important, perhaps uh, m- more in Europe than in the US, because we have um, many staff conducting positions or assistant positions to help uh, conductors uh, advance. But in Europe, those are not always uh, very common. And so competition is is another helpful means in gaining exposure and, and, and building relationships.
0: I spent some years as assistant conductor and then became associate conductor with the CBSO in Birmingham. You, from 2015, did the same thing, uh, a year as assistant conductor and then associate conductor with the Minnesota Orchestra under Osmo Vanska. Now, I ask this because every orchestra is different. Were you assistant conductor to the orchestra or were you assistant conductor to Osmo Vanska? Because often that can make a big difference. And what was your relationship like with both the Minnesota Orchestra and with Osmo?
1: Well, I was f- f- first and foremost uh, assistant, and associate conductor to the orchestra. Yeah. Um, Osmo is a, is a is a is a person who is quite independent and is able to work and and do a lot of things uh, on his own. And and so uh, he didn't re- he didn't necessarily need me around him all the time, which yeah. is which is which is good. Um, I was able to observe and and learn from him a great deal. Um, when I went to the Minnesota Orchestra, I, I think I only liked one or two Sibelius symphonies, and now I think <laughs> I like I like all of them, and I'm surprised at that, because I still remember um, before that time, I was thinking, I don't get what the big deal is with Sibelius V. I don't understand why people like that piece. Uh, and now I'm, I'm dying to do that piece again. I've only done it once, and but I think that is how the, our relationship with music evolves and change. And sometimes a piece comes to you at a certain part of, or a time in your life where you feel like you have something to say about it. But um, I was more, more hands-on with the orchestra and I got to conduct uh, quite a bit, which is important. That's one of the most important things that Man. I had. Opportunities with that orchestra. Um, sometimes it's not just good to have a, a powerful uh, assistant or associate conductor position with a with a large orchestra. It's about how that position is carved out inside okay. that uh, institution. What will you be doing? What will you be conducting? How will you be connecting with the community? And so I got a chance to do some pretty. Um, some pretty big concerts there. And that um, not only helped you, helped me grow musically, but gave me a bit more responsibility and uh, helped me also get from under the Minnesota Orchestra and advance my own career, because I think the, the, the big risk is, is getting stuck in one of these positions for, for over uh, three years.
0: Mm. Well, I mean I've been stuck in mines for fifteen uh, as assistant or associate, <laughs> but that's basically because I was a player there for twenty two so I have a deep loyalty with that orchestra, so I don't mind being stuck there um, but i I do take your point i think there there are definitely things that you know exactly. you ta- you take you take from it what you take from it, and you know the great thing about assistants uh, or associate jobs is that it's not just about doing your community concerts and doing your big projects it's Observing the music directors it's observing the guest conductors it's finding out what what the bad ones do as well as the good ones it's also you know getting in the coffee queue with the players and asking questions and, and you know that sort of stuff wouldn't you agree
1: yes and michael i like um, to, to go back to your point it's also about what your um, what are some of your your ambitions in the sense of um I think one of my predecessors at the Minnesota Orchestra, Sarah Hicks, she started off as assistant conductor and, and really found her niche in that in that ensemble, and now is principal conductor of, of uh, Orchestra Live, their whole their whole pop series. And yeah. and you know, some of my friends uh, who are assistant conductors uh, stay for much longer and actually establish. Uh, their own separate series in those orchestras and and really branch out in in different ways Um, for me, I think uh, And again with the with the orchestra you're working with uh, for me and the Minnesota orchestra I think it was the understanding that we want you to stay for two or three years and then we want you to to go and and, uh, be independent and do your own thing and um, and so with that understanding I I and and that's been great because then I I yes I've been able to to travel and and start to um, find my own path.
0: Mm. Well, the next thing I was going to mention you're very you're very good at leading into my next topic, Roderick. <laughs> Um The next thing I was going to mention was uh, I've called it on this podcast the hamster wheel of guest conducting, and the reason why I've called it that is that. Sometimes it's difficult to get off, but actually hamsters do like getting on that wheel and they love running and doing it. I know, we all love guest conducting and flying around and doing weeks there. And, you know, looking at your CV, you've been to an awful lot of orchestras. Um, how were those first dates? Um, did you enjoy that? There's a special sort of free song about turning up to an orchestra on a Monday morning for the first time. How, what was it like for you? Um, <laughs> I have to say, I'm
1: always nervous, yeah, Michael, I'm always nervous uh, going to an orchestra for the first time and uh, especially before the first rehearsal. I'm always, um, it's exciting, um, but it's also a bit nerve-wracking for me. And so... I remember uh, Bob on. I don't know how much of this is actually true, but he said to me, he said, I'm, I'm nervous before every rehearsal. Uh, and so some of us just respond a bit differently, but I, I think it's, it's a wonderful privilege, it's a wonderful honor, but it, it is a lot of first dates that you're mm-hmm. going on. And, and so unless you really like to date, and I know I have friends who really like to go on dates for uh, <laughs> um, uh, during their lives. Um, then it can be great. Um, I, I, I like to, I like establishing relationships. And so uh, going back is always, it's always um, a better situation, I think.
0: Yes, I, I agree with you there. Um, yeah, I'm the same. I, New York's drama was nervous as hell the first time. Um, you just put that beat down and you don't know what's going to come at you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, 2018, you set up the Roderick Cox Music Initiative. Um, I'd love you to tell us what inspired you to start that? How does it work? How does it run? Um, and how's it been going for these two years? Well, it stemmed out
1: of my own childhood um, when I um, I, uh, growing up in Macon, Georgia, it, it was never it never crossed my mind to become a professional a musician. Um, and we didn't have much money for for lessons, uh, let alone buying our my own, an instrument for me to play on. So when it came time for me to go to to college, uh, a French horn is, is not as expensive as a good violin, but it's still expensive uh, for uh, a single parent household, and so. Um, a local foundation called the Otis Redding Foundation, uh, named after the late singer uh, who passed away in the 60s. His widow um, bought me a French horn, no strings attached. All I had to do was send in my grades <laughs> each, each semester. Um, and that, was, that just really opened up so many uh, avenues and windows for me. I just felt so inspired. Um, and I, I felt that I wanted to try to, it's not enough to, to say to young people, oh, you can become a musician or or you can become a professional conductor and you can do this too. Um, you have to also figure out ways to help other young people, uh, who are, who are, need a helping hand to, to realize their dreams. And so when I was uh, at the Minnesota Orchestra, I was very um, privileged to have established some great relationships there. Um, to where we decided to set up this initiative, there was a, a board of, of directors and myself, and uh, <laughs> and it, and I was surprised how wildly successful it, it has been in just one year of raising over a hundred thousand dollars and and. Um, and we partnered with two local music um, programs in the Twin Cities Walker West Academy and McPhail Music Center. And um, through those academies or, or centers, uh, we've selected seven uh, young people, young string players. Uh, to To help and to give money to to help them pursue their dreams. So if it go if it goes to them buying a new bow, to being able to study at a at a summer camp, those are things we we do. And, um, and during Corona, I've been able to link with those uh, young musicians via Zoom and just talk to them about you know what their journey and and how they're coping. With, um, with coronavirus and, and how are they staying inspired and, and, and um, telling them that th- um, the, the will to practice is, is, is also hard for us professional musicians <laughs> right now. <laughs> and so whatever feelings you might have, they are valid and understandable. Um, but I also gave them some, some inspirational uh, news in, in in knowing that uh, even at the very top, um, some of my great friends who are concert violinists—they're spending this time to work on their vibrato or work on their 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 bow stroke or try out a new violin. And so, the foundational things that young people are learning—becoming um, a great musician—is is is not a destination, but it's a journey. And uh, and so also I. There is a mentor, a mentorship um, part of the, of the initiative that I try to engage in.
0: I think that's wonderful. Um, people need to know that musical instruments are not cheap. And just because you come from an underprivileged background uh, where you may not have, your parents may not have the money at all to, to help you, you. know, They may be able to just about to afford lessons, but definitely cannot buy an instrument. I think that's, that's superb. It's so difficult to do if you cannot afford an instrument. And I think that's wonderful. I, and to help with mentoring, um, uh, yeah, I applaud you. Hats off and bravo, and, and, uh, and long may it continue. Thank you, thank you, Michael. I've asked every conductor this question because geeks, conducting geeks ask me too, which is, how do you learn a new score, Roderick? Do you sit at the piano and and look at it that way, or do you sit at a desk and um, just sing it through to yourself? What's your process? And when you learn a score, do you mark it up? Are you a a scribbler of notes in your score like me, or do you like to keep your scores virginal white? (laughs) Well obviously that
1: um, that evolved that has evolved over time, and I think we learned our best ways of studying scores um, um, in the process through experience and depending on the piece I think at this point if I'm cracking open a new score, I try not to mark it for a while in in the, or not to put my own personal um, uh, opinions on the music too soon. Mm. I think I want to take the music in for what it is that I see on the page and to really read about composer and the music and do uh, analysis starting from big to small. What's the structure? Where are we going? And then what's the phrase? And then what sort of harmonies are we exploring or harmonic centers? And how does, how does that shape the transition? And I find that if I start from that, um, really grounding myself in, I think, perhaps the, the academic or intellectual side of it, later when I can then start to think about atmosphere or color or shape or how I think this should go or how, the, the how much to drive the, the transition or the code or if it should go faster or slower here, it's it's grounded in, um, in, I suppose, the question of why. Why do you want that sound? Why do you want that color? Why do you want that shape? And to be able to explain that, because I think, okay, the harmony here is a- ambiguous, and I think we want to stress this dissonance here and so forth, that just really helped focus my emotions because i believe if you approach our music classical music from a purely emotional side i find that emotions change uh, all the time and they change um they're fickle things and so how you know your tempo that day may be a little bit different than this day and you have to wonder and then you're actually losing time because you're trying to figure out well, I thought I wanted it this way, but maybe I want it that way. Well, if you can figure out, okay, what you're actually going for, and you and you have that down, um, then it makes it a bit easier. So I write a lot in my score. I, I write a lot of facts. I write a lot of stories sometimes, if there's a story, um, because that storytelling is important. It's not just about you need to get to the point to where you can tell the story of the piece and not just the fact that we're going from uh, the exposition into the, the the pre-core material of the development. You know, listeners don't care about that. Yeah. Um, I'm not a pianist and unfortunately, um, and I just, and so I have to work on that. But by and large, I don't, sit at the, at the piano for a long time and work through a score. I'll work through harmonies and, and small things like that at the piano, but I have to work visually uh, at the desk in trying to put a, put as much as, of it uh, in my head in terms of the big picture. Um, but the time I spend at the piano is really getting a sense of of, of the harmony and uh, maybe an obscure line here, um, but I'm not gifted to the point where I can just sit and play through a whole score. I, I wish I, I wish I had that skill.
0: Roderick, it is ten questions time, and therefore I start with: What sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, oh,
1: oh! <laughs> That is weird. Uh, I love the sound of um, when when Serena Williams hits hits the tennis ball. <laughs> uh, I hate a ticking clock when I'm sleeping.
0: If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing?
1: Ah, uh, well, <laughs> I suppose I would spend it uh, at the beach with friends and. Um, lots of drinks and margaritas and frozen drinks and a spa, a spa day.
0: Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear?
1: Mm, Carlos Kleiber.
0: You've joined the gang. (laughs) That's loads of people who said Carlos Kleiber. In fact, a useless factor today, it's his birthday today. I wonder whether you knew that. Um, Yes,
1: yes, I saw.
0: And Again, you can have more than one. And who would be a favorite current conductor?
1: Mm, That is so tough, depending on the repertoire and all of that. Um, Oh, that's okay. Uh, Yannick, Daniela Gatti, uh, Daniel Harding, um, um, Fabio Luigi, Oh, and Andrus Nelsons, of course.
0: What is the hardest work you have ever conducted?
1: The John Adams Saxophone Concerto.
0: Wow, why?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is is a wacky, wacky score. It's crazy hard, crazy difficult for the orchestra to play. And um, there's so many meter and um, meter changes and such that are really out of out of the normal rhythm of your body. It, uh, it, was, it, it was a stressful, stressful score, but yeah, it was a stressful score.
0: <laughs> <laughs> have you ever conducted a, a short ride in a fast machine?
1: I have not. Um, that- well,
0: I've conducted it, I think 36 times, um, because mm-hmm. over here in the UK, it became very popular because the BBC listed it as one of 10 essential pieces you had to listen to. So every orchestra played it. And you would think having conducted a five-minute piece 36 times, I'd be able to get anywhere near conducting it from memory. Well, I can't, and it's exactly the same reason. There's many meter changes, but they don't seem to make sense to me in, in that regard. So I, I just cannot conduct it from memory. I can conduct it very well, but I can't conduct it from memory. I still find it really hard.
1: Take that and make it 30 minutes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without?
1: My Bose headphones.
0: Uh, Are they noise cancelling? Yes. I agree with you. I think they're essential travelling items and even essential hotel wearing items at times. Exactly. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor?
1: Hmm. Um, Maybe the clothing we wear. Hmm.
0: But then as conductors, we sort of can wear what we want to a degree, I suppose.
1: To a degree. I think it could be a bit more. I think as musicians, we're like one of the only art forms or or things that just still wears the same thing. Uh, (laughs) even, Even basketball players and tennis players have changed a bit.
0: What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: Well, okay, Um, I would have loved to be, to have been, uh, um, well, it's still in music though, but a a cellist, uh, maybe a a concert cellist, a solo cellist or something, or um, I don't think I would have ever had the skill to do it, but oh, I would have loved to be a professional tennis player or um, maybe a surgeon.
0: If the world was to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink
1: well it would need to be a ribeye steak mm. uh, a, a wonderful ribeye steak uh, with an Argentinian mall back mm. uh, I think that would be great
0: have you ever been to Buenos Aires Roderick yes uh, so like me you probably thought you'd died and gone to heaven <laughs> <laughs>
1: true uh and i also went to mendoza which was uh fine country out there it's just very hard to beat i'm just always looking to try to get that again
0: (laughs) that that is one of my bucket list things to do is to go to mendoza so i'm very jealous roderick (laughs) i've had a wonderful hour chatting to you and i hope to see you soon in the future
1: thank you michael
0: take care stay safe A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who has been principal conductor or music director in the United Kingdom, Sweden and Finland. During my career as an orchestral violinist, I would guess that I probably played more concerts under him than anyone else. Until then, bye bye!